I called the chief of staff again and um, I even texted him so it was in writing and I texted him and said you know I need this ICU doctor off of my husband's case effective immediately I, I feel I feel scared for his life and his safety do not allow him to even enter his room and I need you to put the other doctor back on in his orders and whatever he said to him uh, the ICU doctor conceded off of my husband's case and the meds were eventually put back on but that gap getting that care is really what took the toll on my husband so and like the doctor said if you take him off he's gonna die and he did around 24 hours later ready to live at the higher vibrations where peace love joy and good health are the daily standard that's what this show is all about welcome to vibe and here's your host robin openshaw hey everyone welcome back to the vibe show I'm your host, Robin Openshaw, and before we get started with today's story, I just want to tell you that I've been deplatformed. Uh, I've lost PayPal, Venmo, Square. I've been taken off of Spotify. So wherever you listen to me, highly recommend you go to takeactionforfreedom.com and get on my email list so that I can at least send you content like this if I suddenly disappear off of your favorite platform or whatever. So go to takeactionforfreedom.com. And if you follow me as Green Smoothie Girl the last 15, 16 years, definitely go to greensmoothiegirl.com and sign up on my newsletter list there. If you used to get my newsletter list, if you used to get my newsletter and now you don't, it's because if you don't open an email for like, I think it's three or four weeks, the way it works now is they just drop you off of our email list. So if you thought you followed me and you're like, wow, I never get emails from her anymore, that's why. So go to greensmoothiegirl.com. And, or if you like my freedom activism, go to takeactionforfreedom.com and make sure and get on our newsletter list. We aren't spammers. You've probably noticed I don't even have ads on my podcast. It's just a public service. <clears throat> so today I want to share with you the story of Ryan and Stacy. It is I, not that we're ranking them, but it's the most devastating story I've heard yet. And rather than drag Stacy through having to tell her whole story, uh, I interview her at the end, but I'm just going to read you her story that you can actually read yourself and I'll put it in the show notes down below on protocolkills.com. This is a website that was probably put up by someone who whose loved one died in the hospital and they're trying to make some meaning out of what happened to them. And there are a lot of people on there telling their stories, none more devastating than the story of Ryan and Stacy. So let me read it to you really fast. If you're listening to a podcast, just put it on 1.5X and you can hear the story in a matter of five minutes. And then we're going to go and talk to Stacy about uh, what she's learned since then and what has happened in the, it's not even been two months since her husband passed away on January 3rd of 2022. My husband of 13 years, we've been together for 25 years, over half my life. My high school sweetheart was murdered by hospital protocols. He was only 41 years old. On November 22nd, 2021, I took my husband into the ER. He was suffering from pneumonia. I didn't want to take him in knowing how bad the protocols are. I've heard horror stories. I begged my husband not to go because his oxygen level was not that bad. I wanted him to wait it out until the next day. We were picking up ivermectin that was prescribed to him by a doctor. But at 4 a.m., he woke me to say he really thought he needed to go in. He figured they would send him home with some oxygen, maybe give him a steroid shot and a new antibiotic. 
Every fear I had came true. Before I left him at the ER, I made sure to remind him not to put him on a ventilator or give him remdesivir. He promised me he would not. My husband told me that he told them no remdesivir, and I had told doctors the same. Seven days after being in the hospital and on an oxygen mask, his oxygen was still doing pretty good. Staff told me his oxygen was in the mid to upper 90s, which is a normal range. Same time I had a doctor call me and have to convince him to go on the ventilator. I told him I would not do that. My husband was even confused about why they were pushing that so hard. The doctor said to me on the phone that he told my husband, we will vent you with or without your consent. When I told him I believed that was illegal, he hung up on me. I quickly texted my husband to make sure that he knew that I did not consent to a ventilator. I tried calling back to the hospital. I got no answers. Later that night, the same doctor called me to inform me that my husband was vented hours ago. I never got to talk to my husband prior. Around day six or seven, I began to hear doctors tell me we are watching his kidneys closely. When I would ask if he was given remdesivir against our consent, they would not answer me. It was always either the chart information was not there in front of them, or I needed to talk to a different doctor about that, etc. It was not until one day that I got a different nurse on the phone who I had never spoken to before that I took a different approach. This time I made it sound like I was hopeful that he was given remdesivir because I heard that was a treatment option. When I asked in a positive tone, she responded, oh, just let me look in his chart quickly. Yep, he was given three rounds of remdesivir the week he came in. I knew then that my battle had just begun. Shortly after this conversation, my husband's kidneys had gone into renal failure with only 7% function. He now had to be on continuous dialysis and his body was becoming septic filling with fluid around his heart and lungs. It was also not until he was placed on the ventilator for about a week that they even allowed me to come and see him. His wife, who has been sick, who has been with him the entire time he was sick, had gotten this virus previously and healed quickly with ivermectin and had already built up a natural defense to it. They still didn't let her spend any time with him in the hospital. I then began pushing for ivermectin to be given to him, which was one of his home medications prescribed by a doctor. I went to court and I got nowhere with that. The judge didn't even want to hear from the doctor or me and even ruled no ability to appeal later. The judge was illegally revoking my husband's legal civil right to try. So I began calling anyone I thought had the power to help. I got a hold of the patient relations department and they told me, if you find a physician willing to give it, they will allow it and protect their jobs. I don't think they believed that I would find anyone, yet I found four someones. Before finding the doctor, I had nurses routinely tell me these protocols are not helping patients. Nothing we are giving them will help them get well. We are literally letting patients die. Due to politics, we are not allowed to give them anything that may help. I had doctors even say the same thing. One doctor in particular came into my husband's room while I sat at my husband's bedside and said to me, I would love to give him ivermectin. I think it could help him. I would give it to my child if it were my child lying there. However, due to politics controlling our healthcare system, sadly today, my hands are tied. I have to think of my paycheck and my livelihood first. I just snapped 
There was no asking nicely after that. I told him this Christmas while you're with your family, I want you to have visions of me sitting here bedside and begging you. The only one who can help him, who took an oath of doing no harm to save him. At the same time, you stand there and tell me your paycheck is more value valuable. Shame on you. Most come into healthcare to save lives and not earn a paycheck, but now we know where you stand, sir. I told him and the two nurses standing behind him that they would have to stand before the Lord one day, and I would not want to be them when that day of judgment comes. They would tell me this with no emotion behind it, as though it's been said and addressed too many times to count. They acted as though they were telling me the game's rules, and I was to come to terms with it as this is how it would sadly play out. I was now stuck in the choice we made to go to the hospital for help. It was the wrong choice. After this meeting with that paycheck-motivated doctor, the next day, the administrator came to my husband's room with a police officer and asked me to go to a back room. She began to tell me that they didn't like my attitude in the hospital and that I affected the nurse's care. I told her what the doctor had told me about his paycheck before, before lives comment and asked her what attitude she thinks I should have. She then changed the direction and told me that a nurse saw me going into other patients' rooms, which is a health threat or health violation. At first, I was angry at being accused of this, and I told them that it was not true and that they knew it. However, I thought about it, and I realized that they have cameras everywhere inside that hospital. In my husband's room, I assume all the rooms and in all the halls, they know if I did or did not, so they know that the answer was no. So what they were saying without directly saying it was, you keep messing with our protocols and speaking out like you are, that will be our story and that will prevent you from seeing your husband again. I was being set up with blackmail, more or less. I realized how deep of an evil game this hospital was playing. When I found a doctor willing to try ivermectin and the other vitamins, et cetera, the frontline doctors recommended, he told me that he just wanted to know that other doctors had his back. So I took all the doctors I found on board and I brought them together because courage is contagious. The next day I came into the hospital to see the nurses waiting for me. They gathered around me to tell me, we are proud of you for standing up and doing this fight. We need it. Know that you are not alone. We have your back. One nurse had printed up many articles on ivermectin helping to save lives research articles that he said would hold up as credible documents. They told me to give these to any doctors questioning it. The nurses gathered around me and thanked me. Then apparently they gathered around the doctor I found too. Let's call him Dr. M for now. Dr. M came into my husband's room to tell me that I was right. The other doctor's names I gave him are all on board with supporting him and the nurses on the floor gathered around him to say that too. That was good enough for him, he said. He said, let's do this. I asked if I could hug him and he let me. The next day I brought the meds up for ivermectin to be given. I had to have it inspected by the hospital pharmacy to confirm that that's what it was. The pharmacy attempted to stop it from even coming up. They wanted the administration to deny it just because it's not protocol. The nurse asked, when did this become our new policy and how we do things? I had to call Dr. M about what was happening, and he contacted the chief of staff to get the meds brought up as they should be. We succeeded, and we got the meds to my husband. By 9 p.m. on that Monday night, 
my husband was given 76 milligrams of ivermectin, his first dose. He was set for it to be given for five days. And if it showed positive results, it would continue for 10 days. The first night it was delivered, his blood oxygen level went from 64% to 100% overnight. His vent setting went from 100% to 65% need in three days. My husband was improving. He held his own at 100% pulse or blood oxygen level and steady heart rate and blood pressure while weaning off the ventilator. I finally at last could go home and shower and relax. Then before the fourth dose was to be given, a doctor from infectious disease came in to revoke him off the ivermectin to remove Dr. M's orders, saying because it's not hospital protocol. Then she took herself off his case, a hit and run, if you will. No communication prior, during, or after. She handed the case over to another doctor that has never worked with my husband and had no contact with us earlier, during, or after. My husband began to decline in health after he was cut off from what was working. A little research into their drug company payouts shows that they are paid by her, Jansen, and him, Gilead, which is the company that pushes remdesivir over ivermectin. Yet both are listed as treatment options on the NIH website. Motive, perhaps, right? I also made many attempts to request that his ventilator be moved to a trach instead. There were many opportunities for them to do this. Still, they knew I wanted to have him transferred to a different facility, and it's my opinion they knew that keeping him on the vent with it down his mouth would prevent me from successfully getting him transported. It felt like they were holding his body hostage in a dangerous environment. I was scared for my husband's life in their care. I was told two weeks max is the longest one should have a ventilator down the throat to avoid damage to the vocal cords or erosion in the throat. My husband was kept on a ventilator in that manner from November 30th to January 3rd, the day of his murder. After the two weeks on the vent, I could see the hospital's care of my husband changing. It felt like they were waiting for him to die versus trying to get him well. He had bleeding going on inside. No one was concerned about why. His ventilator had a tear in the balloon that was inside his throat or chest cavity, and they said they didn't want to replace it. They delivered a horrible bed sore on his tailbone area that no one wanted to answer me if they were even treating it. Then they kept him on the paralyzing and sedation drugs for 14 days straight up to the time of his death. Prior, they would tell me that keeping anyone on the paralytics is dangerous if it goes past 48 hours, that weaning off of them is critical. Yet after that change in care, they kept him on those drugs against my wishes for 14 days straight. When I'd ask him to be removed from them, no one would honor my voice for him. One day later, I checked on my husband and found him sweating all over without a fever. His pulse oxygen was dropping, and I didn't know why. The nurse on staff with him didn't act like this was normal. So I called Dr. M to tell him what I saw. He knew he was going through a cytokine storm right away. The nurse on staff had no idea what that even was. Keep in mind, this is an ICU unit where all the news says they have COVID patients all the time, yet they had never heard of a cytokine storm. Somehow I knew what it was. His body was attacking itself. I heard Dr. M say, if we don't act fast and do something now, we may lose him tonight. 
Dr. M put him on a high dose steroid, nine times the strength of anything that he had been given before. Dr. M said he should have been on this a long time ago, not this, this protocol low dose steroids that they routinely give everyone. Dr. M put him on the heavy dose steroid and Benadryl every four hours. My husband went through a long night. I stayed beside him for over 17 hours straight praying for him. He made it through the night and his pulse ox was back in the 90s. And a nurse who has worked in ICU for 40 years was with him. I felt safe to run home and feed our pets quickly and return. I was wrong. Just like when visiting hours end, every family sees changes for the worse in their loved ones. In the four hours or less that I was gone, I got a call that a doctor from the ICU unit got his nose out of place that Dr. M wrote him an order for that high-dose steroid that is not protocol. The ICU doctor wanted it revoked. He told Dr. M that it is not your patient today. It was his. He won't break protocol. Dr. M said that if you take that man off this drug, especially cold turkey, you could kill him. Should this be about what is best for the patient versus whose patient this is? This is not a turf war. Dr. M said to him, I had to call the chief of staff to fix this, saying, I want this ICU doctor off my husband's case effective immediately because I fear for my husband's life. I want Dr. M back on his case now. We got it corrected and the ICU doctor conceded off my husband's care. Though that gap in medical care and attention took a toll on my husband's body, his blood oxygen level was now at a dangerous 40%. His body was now in fight or flight mode and trying to keep his vital organs functioning, heart, lungs, brain, letting the rest of his organs die off. I was called to get back there because my husband was dying. Dr. M sat with us and cried because he tried so hard to save him against the protocols. He told me that doing CPR, if he codes, would not prolong his life, but his death. The hardest thing I ever had to hear I was losing my best friend. He was being ripped from me by greed. They stole our future. The hospital was getting around $45,000 from his death alone, not counting the days on the ventilator pay. Although the hospital thought differently, there was no price tag on my husband's life. I played our wedding dance song one last time, Me and You by Kenny Chesney, and told him how much I loved him and how proud of him I was. And I told him how sorry I was that time ran out and I couldn't save him from this. I told him to go home and be with Jesus to watch over me in the next battle because my fight was not done. This is not done. I won't let his death be in vain. I'm going to scream the truth from the mountaintops. My husband was murdered. They stole our future. Every dream we had planned, starting a family, gone. Travel plans canceled his new business lost, and so forth. He was only 41 years old, and he had so much to live for. He never needed to be vented or given remdesivir like he was. They destroyed not one life, but two, for mine will never be the same. I wake up to look at four walls and live in silence. No laughter, no human touch, no conversations, no dreams, just a nightmare I can't wake up from. Everyone that is taking money for this, for letting this happen, will be held accountable. If not in a trial here soon, then on judgment day, I would not want to be any of them. No job in the world is worth this. Suppose they all stood up and said, no more. 
they would force change. Until then, I plan to fight for it, just like I did my husband's life and his civil rights. I plan to make changes happen. I will not let my husband's murder go unnoticed and his life be in vain. They messed with the wrong power couple. Ryan sadly went in on November 22nd looking for help and died at the hands of deadly protocols on January 3rd, 2022 at 6.05 p.m. Thank you for letting me share my story. I can't believe our love story ends this way. I would never have thought it was this bad in hospitals. The hospitals and the Oath Keepers of doing no harm are responsible for countless lives leaving this world this way, way daily. May God have mercy on their souls. May God help me push forward and find the next chapter. So, Stacy, I've just read your story to the audience because it seemed to me like that was some kind of that would be some kind of torture to make you tell your whole story again and I I couldn't be more grateful that you're willing to tell your story because I think it has the the potential to help a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the Vibe show. <laughs> Thank you for having me. And I'm sure I speak for everyone who's listening how sorry we are about what happened to you and to your husband. Mm-hmm. Um some things that you wrote about in your story that I just read, I just want to ask some follow-up questions about, and also just, you know, what's happened since then. How, how many shows have you gone on in the alternative uh, media? Somewhere around 10, 10 or 11, I think it is now. 10 or 11. Yeah. Okay, well, I will help you get on all those <laughs> other ones. Uh, Del Big Tree, Stu Peters, Bobby Kennedy, we'll get them to cover your nice. story because everyone should know it. Um, and I really appreciate that you say, let's see, I wrote this down and I just wanted to really just hear your perspective on this. You said, I will not let his death be in vain. I'm going to scream the truth from the mountaintops. Mm -hmm. And I believe Uh, that's super important because something that you, uh, have in common with other stories that we have told on this show about losses uh, nobody mm-hmm. as young as you, your, your husband is the youngest one and it's strikes really close to home. My husband is also 41. Um, is that the only reason you're speaking up and the only reason you know that COVID didn't kill your husband is that he went into the hospital and you already knew. Yep. So what are some of the things that you asked for that you're most upset that you asked for, or you asked to not happen like top three-ish do you feel like <laughs> resulted in that outcome and you had said no to them or had asked for some something you didn't get, said no to something you did get? Uh, the first big one would be the remdesivir. Uh, just because I even called myself in case for whatever reason he didn't rem- remember what it was called because I was more into uh, these stories of other people and um, what was happening during protocols and helping other people get through it. Uh, I um, I called the doctors and I said, I want to make sure that it's in his notes that he is not to get remdesivir. He doesn't want it. I definitely don't want it for him. You know, uh, we want it in his noted in his chart now that it's no to remdesivir. Uh, and, uh, that never just happened. They, they let, they actually kept it a secret from me that they had given it to him. And I did not know that they were, um, 
<laughs> that they were keeping him drugged up to get compliance. That's something that I wasn't aware that they were doing. Uh, had I have known that, that would have been a different ball game if I would have had to take myself in there anyways against their wishes to be in there or not. Uh, I didn't know that they were giving him things like Xanax and other medications to keep him loopy and delusional. So basically like a modern day, like fate rape drug, if you will, but on a medical level. Um, then uh, the other one, I guess, would have been uh, I had the um, uh, patient relations tell me that if I was able to get a physician willing to give him ivermectin, that they would allow it and stand by that and protect their jobs. And yet I found three doctors within the system and two more on the outside, but they said they had to be um, Beaumont affiliated. So I got three doctors within the system to stand up and decide to give him that and give him all the frontline doctor protocols. So the vitamins, the ivermectin, the higher dose steroids, and he was responding well to it and getting better. Um, and they took him off of that because they said it's not protocol, even though I had it approved by patient relations to move forward with that. Even the chief of staff over there stood by that. Um, then I would the say chief, the other thing. The chief of staff stood behind, no, we're not going to allow him to have ivermectin in these nope. supplements. He was standing behind allowing us to have it. <laughs> he actually stood behind the doctor who ordered it. So he went to bat for us on two occasions, one being uh, when they... The pharmacy was trying to withhold the meds that the doctor ordered to come up. Uh, he he had a call down to the pharmacy and say, you have 30 minutes to bring those meds up. You know, the doctor ordered them. The pharmacy was trying to withhold them because they wanted the administration to deny it. And so that doctor, the chief of staff is a doctor as well. So he, uh, he did say that he ordered them to bring that up, said, either do it in 30 minutes or I'm coming down there. I'm, in, I'm the only one in charge tonight. Bring it up. And then they did, and that's how we got it started. And then another time he went to bat for us when the ICU doctor was taking my husband off of that steroid that was saving his life at the end. Um, and the, the doctor who ordered it told him, you know, if you remove the steroid, he's going to die. And the ICU doctor said, is that a threat? And tried to report him to legal department saying he's threatening him. And it was, it was more of uh, this isn't your patient versus saving the life of a patient uh, when they both should have been having that as their mission to save Ryan's life. And uh, when he took him off of it and was threatening the doctor who was fighting for my husband, I called down, I called the chief of staff again. And um, I even texted him. So it was in writing. And I texted him and said, you know, I need this ICU doctor off of my husband's case effective immediately. I, I feel, I feel scared for his life and his safety. Do not allow him to even enter his room. And I need you to put the other doctor back on in his orders. And whatever he said to him, uh, the ICU doctor conceded off of my husband's case and the meds were eventually put back on. But that gap, getting that care is really what took the toll on my husband. So, and like the doctor said, if you take him off, he's going to die. And he did around 24 hours later. You know, your story reads like a terrible dystopian nightmare it was your yeah. your living nightmare you're so young what what made you know so much to be able to go up against them i mean you there's blackmail in your story there's police coming to a room to in, intimidate you and try to silence you how'd you how'd you know how to do all that do you have some background in your life that made you not <laughs> trust the medical system or how are how are you so savvy in this whole thing. 
Yeah, you know, when I was little, I had a lot of health issues um, that made me have to take a deeper look into the medical industry and uh, following the ties, financial ties to the drug companies. Uh, that always had an interest. I always had an interest in that and politics and uh, just following that kind of a background, I knew a lot more than a lot of people did. And even though all that comes out to anyone who's not aware as conspiracy until they live it themselves, um, there's still a lot of people that do get it or find themselves in the same situation I was in uh, and that were asking me to help them through it. And I was prior trying to line them up with doctors that were fighting for a good cause and trying to help get them the right medications, try to try to prevent them going into a hospital. Um, and once I learned what they were giving in protocols, which is literally like saline, a low dose, six milligram steroid given every 12 hours and then remdesivir. And I learned, I knew to research everything and I'm researching what the World Health Organization was saying about remdesivir, about it being more, more deadlier than the virus itself, not to give it. Uh, that's something they should take a little seriously. And if it, even if they want to run with the idea that COVID can cause kidney problems, why in the world are you giving a drug that can also cause kidney issues? Uh, why would you want to enhance that and make it any worse? Uh, so if they want to use that as the, uh, you know, their excuse, but it's, um, there's a lot of financial payouts. My husband was an insurance agent. He did health and life insurance. Um, so he's seen the payouts that these insurance companies are giving these hospitals, a 20% bonus if they use remdesivir over ivermectin. Uh, so we knew that going in. So we knew what their motive was. Um, and that's, also that's a 20%, almost like a commission. Yeah. Of the whole bill, I believe. Yeah, I think so. 20%, like, not, it's not like, it's not like it's a little bit better than if they give him ivermectin. It's like the doctors would have to fight for him to get ivermectin. They're jeopardizing their standing in their job if they fight for him to get ivermectin. But you, you had healthcare workers standing with you. I did. They, they yeah. formed a circle around you. They were <laughs> they fighting did. for you and still lost. Yes. Yeah. It, it actually felt like, um, I felt like I was living in a dream because I've never, ever heard of anyone having that same outcome. Everyone always got nowhere, no doctor supporting them. Um, I don't know if it was just my faith and a lot of prayers. I don't know what really did it, but you know, I, uh, <laughs> like I told the doctor himself, I said, you know, I don't know what it was that made me, um, get you to actually, you know, say yes to this. You know, I, I know that everyone's so scared. And he even said, all these doctors are afraid to be doctors. They're afraid of uh, a policy that doesn't exist. And even I wasn't seeing nothing from the policy when I asked to see it. They told me there was nothing to read. There was nothing to see. Uh, so there was nothing in writing saying that a doctor can't use ivermectin. And if you look on the NIH.gov uh, website, they even have on there, was a page 30 in there that said um, that, the protocols should not be mandated and they should be all up to the physician and the patient uh, at their discretion. And that the patient, and according to Beaumont, the patient has the rights to choose their provider, their doctor and who, what their care is. So they were breaking their own policy, which they later told me is up for debate. Um, and while they're, um, their own policy that the doctors are scared of breaking isn't even in existence. So everyone has this fear of losing their job to breaking a policy that isn't there. They're afraid they won't get paid if they break policy that isn't there. Uh, and it's this 
it's um it's just a strange alternate universe it was like a twilight zone when you start to put all that together and so once I found the doctor who was willing to uh stand up and give him the drugs that he he needed he um he just told me he was worried that he'd be standing alone, that he didn't know if anyone else would have his back. And I said, well, how much support do you need? And he kind of smirked at me and said, well, I don't know. And he's, I said, well, you go check on the policy thing and see where your job lies with that. And I will go and find your support. So I just went on a mission with a whole bunch of friends of mine who are all like-minded. And I say, start giving me names of doctors that are Beaumont affiliated that you think might support this. And then I just went and started calling everyone in the morning um, I was even making some phone calls beside his bed. <laughs> I didn't even care if the nurses came in and heard it. Um, and uh, we had, uh, I found th- three doctors total within the Beaumont facility um, that were willing to do that. And once they found out that they had another person ready to stand up, it was kind of like that courage is contagious and everyone got a little bit braver. And I put them all together and I said, now let's do this. Go back to being an taking your oath seriously of do no harm. You know, this is the right thing. They're telling me that these protocols are just letting these people die, that they know that ain't going to work. When I asked the nurse point blank, what is on his IV that's going to allow him to get better? She told me, well, nothing. And I said, well, then how is it we're supposed to continue to do nothing? And, um, and not try anything else that might work. How is that healthcare? I mean, any normal world outside of the word COVID, uh, a doctor would keep trying something until it works. They would just say, okay, the body didn't respond well to that. We're going to try this. And then we're going to try this. Now, today's world is like, we're only allowed to try these three things. And if they don't work, which most of the time they don't, uh, we're just going to say, oh, well, that's all we're allowed to give because we want our paychecks. That's not healthcare. So I don't know if you know this, Um, And I'm trying to put the pieces together just from what I can see and by asking a lot of people questions, but it appears to me that, you know, like almost every state, if not every state is in legislative session right now. So once a year, these people who might be accountants or lawyers or whatever, homemakers full time, they come together in their state capital and they consider laws and they pass a whole bunch of laws and they reject a whole bunch of others. And it looks to me like a lot, if not all of the states are considering a law, and clearly this all just didn't happen state by state. This is being driven from somewhere high up. In Florida, it is now law, has now been signed by Governor DeSantis, who is arguably the best governor in the country, but mm-hmm. it passed the House, it passed the Senate, and it got the signature of the governor, even though he said his his representative said there were more people writing them asking him to veto it than they've had on any subject in his entire tenure as governor. And what that is, is giving all of these people in the hospital blanket immunity for inflicting the Fauci death protocol. Wow. And DeSantis signed it into law, even though I, I, a week ago today, I built this one-click letter campaign so that people could just, by putting their number in it, in it or their, their email in it, it automatically sends to the governor and like five of his staffers um, an email that I wrote. So they don't even have to understand the issue very well. They just have to know we shouldn't be giving immunity for people doing this, this protocol that has such a low amount of steroids that it can't save people from the horrible systemic inflammation that they're in, like your husband yeah. was. Yeah, he was taking a lower steroid than I do for asthma. If I was in an asthma attack and I took a steroid like he was given every 12 hours, I'd probably be dead. 
Um, wow. just because when you can't breathe, I'm on a higher dose steroid and it's taken every four hours, uh, when you're having trouble. And so I even tried to get him on budesonide breathing treatments, uh, which shown to help a lot of the people with inflammation in their lungs. And, and it would be something even I've taken for, for asthma. And I tried to get them to have that every, um, four hours. It says she should be every two to four hours. Uh, and they wouldn't do it. They just wouldn't. They try to say they don't use no off-label drugs, which is bull crap because they do all the time. Um, I even have a nurse, uh, talking to me, telling me that, that she, uh, says, yeah, we use off-label drugs all the time and uh they try to say well they won't use no drugs that are not fda approved for covid um but they used remdesivir and they've also used the vaccines they gave the vaccines to all their staffs before they were fda approved for covid uh so it's a pick and choose type thing of when they want to have that apply and to make people be forced to use something that isn't working they flat out told me it is not working this is not going to help him and i have proof of this and they told me that if it's not it's not going to work it's not going to make him better um but that's all we're allowed to give because our hands are tied due to politics controlling our healthcare system. Uh, very good points. Yeah. So there's this very specific protocol. It seems to include starving and dehydrating a patient. Yeah. You know, every single one of these families is telling me their story tells about how thirsty their loved one was begging for water. Is that part of your story too? I didn't have that with him. I was really adamant about making sure as soon as I got in there. Now, what they were doing before I got in there, I wouldn't always know. But uh, once I was able to get there, which was a week after he was vented, um, I got in there and I was always checking, making sure that his feeding tube was working, that they were giving him food. Um, and then they were always swabbing his mouth to make sure it wasn't dry. They did that a couple times in a day. Uh, so I was making sure that they were doing that. So I didn't get that part, but I did hear a lot of other people's stories of that. Well, you didn't even get to talk to him because once they're vented, I don't think they care about dehydrating you anymore once you're vented because your, your days are numbered already. Yeah. Once you're vented. Um, yeah. My friend who works in a huge hospital here in Florida and kind of gives me the inside scoop and he does what he can. And they all seem to, the good healthcare workers who are willing to stand up to it in any way will mm -hmm. one-on-one -on -one with the patient or the patient's family they will tell them how sorry they are and how, and you heard this too. I would give my own loved one ivermectin, but I can't because I'll lose my job. So he tries to help the people the very best he can, but this whole thing is so enormous and so beyond clear that they would lose their jobs that they can only stand up to it to a certain extent. But so in Florida, Governor DeSantis seems to have signed it into law. I'm reading between the lines here. And this is happening in Utah, where I moved from. I know of several other states, so my guess is this is happening in every single state, is that right behind the law he signed that gives all of these people a legal shield that no matter how <laughs> many people they help murder with the Fauci protocol, the CDC protocol, the, the other law in Florida is, but you can do other protocols. So that's sort of like, you know, he he's keeping the people happy who have heard stories like yours mm -hmm. because you can at least say, no, I, I want this different protocol. If you're among the 5% of people who even know that right. remdesivir kills, right? And then the hospitalists are happy because he's, you know, he's in an election year and he probably just doesn't want to tick off all these hospitals who are now looking at, well, it's not, it's not our fault that we have to inflict this terrible protocol. Like don't, 
don't make us get sued for it. So right. w- what's happened since then with your with your legal thing? Because I mean, you even if they pass these laws giving them immunity, that sort of suggests to me that they don't have immunity in your case because your case happened before. So yeah, they um, it's the CARES Act that's protecting those doctors and nurses. Um, they have them have a liability protection there. Uh, however, um, there is a loophole that if you can prove int- that the intent to do harm, uh, that's where that loophole applies. And the amount of evidence that I have, uh, I've had attorneys say it's, cl- it's clearly hands down. If this wasn't a typical COVID universe that has this crazy liability protection, that it would be a murder case hands down is what they told me. Um, they said they'd never seen somebody have as much evidence on a hospital as they have me. Um, and so even the ones that were really wanting to even fight this, they said that they they hemmed and hawed over my case the longest because of how much evidence I had, um, that they felt the worst because of how young he was and just how much I, how much I had uh, documented. And um, they're just really scared to go up against that, the government that's behind it. So it's, it's trying to find an attorney that's very pro-American and pro-freedom and uh, taking their job as seriously as what these doctors should have been. So while these lawyers want to point fingers at these doctors for not keeping their oath of do no harm and they know it's wrong, well, they need to look in their own mirror and say, am I an attorney that's going to stand up for what's right? and go to bat for these Americans that are being killed, uh, like just foolishly, like there's no reason why my husband should have died. If he would have been treated for the pneumonia he came in with and not given a low dose steroid that you would probably give an infant over somebody, uh, you know, his size is 250 pounds. That six milligram steroid every 12 hours did absolutely nothing for him. And, um, they needed to actually give him the right kind of medicine to get him well. And when he responded well to another treatment, if we were about healthcare and saving lives, they would have continued that instead of taking away simply because it's not protocol. Um, so we're not about saving lives anymore. We're about just following order. And there needs to be some attorneys that are just as brave as the fingers that they're pointing at the doctors for not keeping their oath, that they need to be just as brave to start standing up for fellow Americans because you know, we can't do this on our own. It takes a group of people to come together, just like that doctor who stood up to do the right thing. All five of those and all the ones across the world that are standing up and speaking out. Uh, just, But we need everybody in their right field that what they're skilled in and being an attorney, being a doctor, whatever, uh, to stand up and do what's right. Take back our country. And we, we do need that. As you're, I think you told me that you've had several lawyers take a look at your case and turn it down. I would tell you from what I can see, because last March I was out there trying to get lawyers who would take the case of a whole bunch of Utah businesses that are being destroyed by the lockdowns. Mm-hmm. And we finally figured out, like, don't even bother going to major firms because mm-hmm. they all have government contracts. And I mean, any major firm, like anybody over like two or three lawyers. So it seems to be just the very small firms or the solo practitioners that you should go to. They have to care about this. Yeah, I mean, I I spent like weeks begging the best civil rights attorney in Utah because he was like a claims to be a political conservator or whatever. I couldn't I couldn't talk him out of his fear of COVID. Mm-hmm. And so he was so like philosophically misaligned with what we were doing. Like he just felt like, no, we got to shut the world down for this virus. So I don't know if that helps you, but try to find the the guys who are like one or two attorneys, guys, women, whatever, 
Mm-hmm. But I, I think you you do have a major case against them. And I think that you're winning that case will help others. It's the CARES Act. It's also the PREP Act. Yeah. Yeah. There's just that gives them pretty solid immunity. But yeah, you and you were collecting evidence, right? Tell us about tell us the story of they brought a police officer in and yeah, they uh, in the back room or something. Yeah, they had after I told off the doctor who came in and told me he had to think of his livelihood and his paycheck first over uh, using something that would help my husband that he knew would help him. Uh, and he was the doctor that people first thought would stand up and be able to do something. So, you know, when he said that, I was like, oh no, you know, I got really, I got as much of a battle as anybody else has had. Um, and that was a bad day to begin with. So I just kind of snapped back at him and I told him, you know, you need to be thinking when this Christmas, when you're with your family, you need to picture me beside my livelihood, begging you as a doctor who took an oath of do no harm, stand up and do what's right uh, and save my husband and not put your paycheck before a human life. And I told him he's going to stand before God one day, like any of us, and that God's going to hold him accountable for that comment. And uh, the next day, and because of the nurses that were behind him, I was even telling them that they need to stand up. They also took an oath of do no harm. And they're just um, as guilty if every time that they say nothing and they continue to work and, and fund this hospital that's killing patients. Um, I said, you just heard what he said. He's admitting that there's something that can help them, but they're not allowed to give it. And I said, so if these nurses all walk out and start saying no more, we're not going to comply to this. Uh, you know, if you want to do it, then you you put that on yourself, but we're not touching that IV. We're not giving that person something that's not going to help him anymore. Uh, the that they would start to make some changes. And so the next day I had an administrator come in with a police officer and they asked me if I would go down to the lobby at the end of the hall. And so uh, a little lounge area. And then I sat in there and the lady told me that she didn't like my attitude within the hospital, that I was affecting how the nurses do care. And I asked her what attitude she was referring to because she tried to change subject. And I was like, no, 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 like back that up. I'm like, what attitude are we speaking of? And then she said, well, there was a conversation with the doctor that came in yesterday. And then I said, oh, yeah, the doctor who told me that he had to think of his paycheck and his livelihood before my husband's life, that doctor. And I said, so what attitude do you think I should have had? And she wouldn't answer me and got quiet and took some notes. Um, and the de- poor police officer's eyes were huge when I, when I told him the story. Uh, I think he was just kind of like wanting to crawl out of there, <laughs> honestly. Um, so then the, ad- the administrator told me that, um, that a nurse had seen me going into other patients' rooms. And that was a security violation and a safety threat, putting them all their lives at risk. And at first I was uh, very um, taken back by it and, and standing up for myself like this is crazy. Why would someone say something like that? And um, that don't even make no sense. I don't know anybody else here but my husband. Uh, you know, I wouldn't put my husband's life at jeopardy of catching anything myself when he's in ICU. Uh, but then I stopped myself as I was arguing that and they were just staying quiet. I thought, wait a minute, that don't even make no sense because there's a camera in my husband's room. There's cameras all down the hall. There's, I would assume, in every room then. Uh, and they got to be buzzed in to even get into the ICU. So there's lots of security. There's no way that they would uh, just assume I did that. That would be a yes or no. And obviously they know I didn't because cameras would have revealed otherwise. Um, 
And so then I got mad thinking, you know, what are they trying to do? And I thought about it and I realized, well, that's just their way of saying without directly saying it. If you don't shut up, sit down and shut up, be quiet uh, and let us just do our protocols as planned. Um, we're going to use that story to stop you from seeing your husband until we're done with them. So. I don't, you must be really, really smart because I promise you, I would not have thought of that. I would have been so upset by a police officer being there, being threatened on top of everything else you were going through. You literally thought, you literally were able to say, what, can you prove that with your own cameras? You literally thought of that right there on the spot. Right. I did. I did. So much security in there. There's just no way. There's no way. Nobody could ever even get away with something like that crazy. And so did they just, they just shut down kind of like, ah, she's got us in our lie. Yeah. They, they got real quiet and they looked at each other and the cop kind of looked really awkward. Like he didn't want to be in there. Um, and I even apologized to the police officer that they were taking his time, taking up his time to be in there. And, um, and, um, and then they pretty much ended that conversation. They didn't have nothing else to really say to me after that. But then I, I didn't push no issue of fighting what they were doing. Uh, just I didn't want them to try to do something else next. I could see how evil their agenda is to finish this off. Um, so I just thought, you know, I'm just going to kind of just lay low with that for now and stew on that for a bit and just go take care of my husband and do what I got to do, but put the focus on him and deal with the hospital after. One um, thing that I keep seeing as a common thread is this patient advocate person. Mm-hmm. There's a patient advocate. They're paid by the hospital. Mm-hmm. They appear to be a hospital employee. And to me, that means that they represent the hospital. That doesn't make right. any sense to me that you're paycheck comes from the hospital and yet you're going to go advocate for a patient who may be needing help against the hospital. Did you have any experiences with those people? Um, I didn't even mess with that route because that was my thought process too. Uh, Because their their paycheck is going to be the hospital. So you're not going to bite the hand that feeds you. Um, So I went and had a advocate outside of the hospital. Dr. Artis was who I contacted to get the first advocate. Um, And then I also had nurse Erin Marie um, as well. Uh, later in the, in the, in towards the end stages there, I got her involved. Um, and, uh, she even told me that she never (laughs) had worked with anyone like me. That was kind of like their own advocate, uh, for as far as I got in the hospital with trying to get the doctors to work with me. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I, I, some, it was a friend of mine that put me in touch with the nurse Erin and the other, they both had their own approaches. So it was kind of good use both of them, uh, when needed, uh, Dr. Artis is the one he recommended, had a more of um stroke their egos approach, <laughs> just tell them what they need to hear to get them to like go, oh gosh, darn, and then give you what you want, you know, just make them blush a little bit and then make have them try to work with you or give you answers. And the other one had more of a, I'm not gonna take this bull crap. This is <laughs> I know what you're pulling. You're gonna let's help this patient this way. Uh so I kind of just would put them when I needed to, whichever route I needed to go with whoever was trying to be combative with me. And uh, some doctors, you know, just you can't get nowhere with. And then other ones sometimes are more sympathetic. Uh, But the nurses he had, I'd say almost all of them, there's a handful that I didn't like, but most of them were very um, uh, sympathetic. A lot of them wouldn't even look me in the eye when you would talk about him getting better because they knew that that he wasn't with what they're doing. Um, 
but they all supported me when I came into the hall the day that I was trying to fight for the ivermectin. Um, I had about five or seven nurses surround me and put their hands on me and tell me that they got my back in this and they thanked me for fighting for doing for what's right. Um, and they said, you need to do this. And I just, we just want to let you know that we have your back in this and we support you. And one of the nurses gave me a printout of a whole bunch of studies on ivermectin helping COVID patients, um, where a lot of them were given earlier on, not as far along as my husband was, uh, but uh, he still said, you know what, these studies show that it's effective against the, the virus. You, these are credible research studies use this. And if any doctor gives you any hard time, uh, you show them this, they can't dispute these studies. Uh, so they even, they took time out on their own to do that. I thought that was, that I even broke down and cried in the hallway with them. Um, and their secretary that worked up there was another fellow Christian. Uh, and she would even tell me she was praying for my husband at her church and uh, praying for me, uh, telling me just to, um, keep having faith in God. So I got farther than most people did, and it felt surreal. And they even surrounded the doctor who went to bat for him and told him, same thing, that we got your back in this. Thank you for doing this for her. Uh, and that's what made him have the courage to do that between a few fellow doctors that he knew well. And then the nurses doing that, that's what he needed to say, you know what, we need to do this. Because he said, there's nothing in this policy saying I can't. What are they going to try to fire me on for being a doctor and making my own decisions that's best for a patient? And so he stood up and he did it. And my husband responded well to it. It's just that another doctor got the orders to go and revoke it. And then when they did, they took himself, they took, she took herself off of his case after she did it. So it wasn't, she never contacted me prior that she was going to take him off. Um, they waited till just before the holidays, which we think was intentional so that we couldn't get it resolved very quickly. Um, and uh, it was just like a hit and run, just a hit and run. Yeah, I mean, it It feels like they just run out the clock and they do enough stuff that in the time that it takes you to figure out what they're doing in this sick, sick game, you referred to it as a game in your story. By then you've lost a lot of time because now yeah. he's got remdesivir. Now his lungs are filling up with fluid. There's yeah. so there's so much to your story and you did so many things right and they they still managed to kill him. And I wonder as you look if they back, never would have drugged him, he never would have went on the bench. I just I know that and uh just from his conversations with us, he kept saying that he had one nurse pushing a vent. Um I had a doctor calling me telling me I needed to convince him to go on the vent. Uh, and I said, I'm not doing that. His pulse ox was at 96 when I talked to him. There's no reason for him to be going on a vent. And he said, well, I told your husband that we're going to vent him with or without his consent. And I told him that's illegal. And he hung up on me. Now, talking to my husband, once I was able to get his phone uh, once I was there and I tell you, that's like, um, I almost hate to even have that get out because doctors will start trying to keep people's phones. But when I got a hold of the, his phone, we even saw even more like he had, we have evidence of where his pulse ox was when they vented him. He told the nurse that he will not go on a vent. Don't bring it up again. Um, 
and uh, they were still pushing it. I think they're pushing it because they knew his kidneys were starting to go and a sedated man can't talk is my thought. Right. They, he's, uh, the, he's the problematic patient because every other room where there's a COVID patient, they're completely sedated and the vent, the vent makes them a very convenient patient. And I can tell you from my friend who gives me the inside scoop on what's really going on in the ERs that, you know, he's doing what he can because he's told me about people the age of your husband who, like your husband, walked on in from his car Mm -hmm. he's going to leave with a prescription and somebody does a scan and says, go upstairs to the second floor to the COVID unit. And he knows, my friend knows, nobody comes out of there alive. He knows that, but the patient doesn't know that. And so he'll stop. He'll stop the patient from going upstairs until he gets Uh the family in there. And the family doesn't even know that they're there to talk to their loved one for the last time. But my friend does. He knows that once they escalate them, he knows that they're, you know, I I had to tell him about the remdesivir story. Mm -hmm. He didn't know that as of last summer, because, you know, Brian Artis has been out there beating that drum ever since he figured it out. Like his father-in-law died before they even were doing remdesivir, but vancomycin will also kill your kidneys. But remdesivir is just a a fast train to hell. Yeah, it took six days with my husband once he was on it to have them starting to watch his kidneys closely. And you said, you you know, you, you found, you had to trick somebody by asking sort of a fake question to even get them to admit that they had put him on remdesivir, even though you told them not to. Yep. Yep. I did. I, I, uh, Every time I called down there and asked if he was given remdesivir and my husband wasn't sure what he was on, um, I uh, I asked them and they would say, oh, we don't know. We had to look at his charts. Uh, the charts, not, that's not in the chart. We can't tell. It's not in front of us. Oh, the nurses are in isolation. You have to ask his nurse. Uh, doctor will have to call you back. Everything around just to get around answering that. But then I would hear the doctors, you know, start to talk about watching his kidneys closely. And I knew, I knew that they had to have done it. And I was already on the phone with attorneys trying to, to fight for his right to use ivermectin. Um, and then uh, when uh, I finally called the another once I called again, I think it was like called later later in the day, and I had a nurse that I have never spoken to before answer. So I went with a different approach and made it sound like I was interested in ivermectin on a on a and I recommend in a positive sense, um, just to handle it a little bit different, different approach. So I said, well, you know, I heard about this drug, remdesivir, that's been used to treat COVID patients. Um, is there any way that my husband can get access to that? Or has he already been given that? Can you check? And then when I said it that way, uh, she's like, oh well, let me just look in his chart and looked in his chart. Oh yeah, he was given that as soon as he came in. Because you were kind of acting like you would be glad if they gave yeah. him remdesivir. And it wasn't until you took that approach that they even mm-hmm. admitted it. Yep. Yep. There's just so much to unpack about your story. And I just think you're such a courageous young lady to just keep going out there and telling your story because it must be just like living in hell. But oh, yeah. you're doing it. The one thing I yeah, the one thing I didn't mention in that story uh, that you had read, uh, only one time my husband had opened his eyes for me Uh, when I was in there. uh, It was just before we were able to get the ivermectin going. I um, I came in and he 
opened his eyes and I got so excited. I was like, oh my gosh, his eyes are open. And the nurse was like, oh, you know, he does that on occasion, which I've never seen him open his eyes yet. And I, I wasn't quite sure if how responsive he was going to be because they had him on so many medications. And, you know, some doctors had always scared me. Did he lose too much oxygen? You know, at when, um, at one point when he was on the vent. And so I thought, well, let's just see. So I asked him if he could squeeze my hand and he tried, I could feel his fingers just twitching ever so slightly, but his hands were so swollen. I think he couldn't bend his fingers. Uh, so then I said, well, how about your eyebrows? Can you move your eyebrows? And he did. And he raised his eyebrows when I asked him, can you understand me and raise your eyebrows? And he raised them. Oh, and my heart just sank that he understood me and knew what I was saying. Um, and then I got around to the other side of him and I started telling him I loved him. And kept raising his eyebrows, let me know that he heard me. Um, I think it was his way of saying it back. And I told him I was fighting for him more than he knew. And then as soon as I told him, I said, Ryan, can you answer a few questions for me? I said, can you raise your eyebrows? Yes. Raise them, raise them for yes and down for no. Make a frown face for no. And I said, uh, that way I can ask you some questions. And as soon as the nurse that was leaving heard me say that, she turned around quickly and ran back to his like monitor and said, we need to up his sedation and start upping it. And then it only takes a few seconds to knock them back out. And I never got to see my husband open his eyes again. They kept him so sedated and so on those paralytic drugs the entire time. Um, and they just kept upping him. And I kept asking them to start weaning him off. And they never would. They were just on the mission to let him go through like a, a hospital hospice, if you will, and, and killing him without me fighting for, for even asking for them to do that. I just wanted him to be able to survive. I kept telling him to start weaning him off. And they would just ignore my wishes. He was stuck. I even told one nurse, I felt like we were stuck in a death camp. Um, and I said, I feel like we're trapped here and that I'm stuck in a death camp here. And the nurse said, I agree. I a hundred percent agree. She works in the death camp. Yeah. You, you, at one point in your story said something like you feel like they look just kind of numbed out because they're dealing with this all day, every day with everybody that they deal with on the COVID ward. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I tell my family the story and I, I, um, sitting by my husband's bed and, and I'm talking so, uh, nice and normal to these nurses to get them to continue to feel comfortable talking. And it's, it's like a twilight zone because the things that they're saying, this is about my spouse that's sitting next to me, but they're saying it as if I'm a coworker and almost like they're, um, venting like uh, they're venting their frustrations but they're separating themselves from being guilty it's like the hospital's making us do this to these patients and so they're they're confiding in me about how bad this is um uh, one nurse specifically said, I don't know why the pushback against ivermectin is it because they know it's the cure. That was one of her words. Uh, she said that, you know, these where our hands are tied, everything's controlled by politics and it shouldn't be. We want to give them other things and we're not allowed to. We're not allowed to give it to them, even though we know what's given them, what we're giving them isn't going to help them get better. It's all we're allowed to give them. And she's sitting there telling me this stuff and I'm looking at him breathing on this vent and, and I'm trying not to lose my, my cool and start telling her off because I want to be able to have them keep talking and they're talking to me and telling me all this stuff. And, um, and it was just like, they're detached from reality that they're realizing that they're talking about your loved one sitting right there. And as you can tell, it's so numb to it. He's just another number that they're just venting to you is like your buddy system. Like, oh, I'm supporting these nurses and feeling bad that 
these people are controlling you. Well, in reality, I'm like, you're just as guilty for taking the paycheck and keeping this place in business. Uh, I've never seen nothing like it before ever. I mean, they're nice nurses. Yes. They took care of them. Yes. They're nice, but they're also allowing him to die. They're, they're in there. They know what they're giving him is not going to help him. And they're all doing it to keep their paychecks. Yeah, you, just, like my, you, you almost have to like live it to believe that this can happen, that this really whole scenario do. was set up so that hundreds of thousands of healthcare workers just push people through the death protocol and yes. maybe speak up to to you to make themselves feel a little better. To, to, these, yeah. people are, these people are psychologically damaged for life. Oh, I, I, I think so. And I think the ones who were just still a little bit in denial that the hospital wouldn't prevent treatments that could work because there's some that would hang on to the idea that they're doing all they can or they're all that that's available to them. But when they saw that drug come in and help my husband the way it did, I mean, his blood gas, his blood gas level went from 64% to hundred percent in less than 24 hours when he was on that other protocol by the frontline doctors. And he, um, did so well and was continuing to do well. And he was coming off the vent every day, a certain percentage and holding his own with his blood pressure and his heart rate. And that stuff never happened before. Once he was on that vent, it was always yo-yoing it over and over, you know, with his health. And that time he was staying steady and coming off of it where I could, we could try to fight again to get him back on a trach um, or completely off altogether and the way it was headed. And the nurses got to witness a doctor coming in and say, nope, that's not allowed. That's not protocol. Um, and then wrote it in the system as giving him horse pills, even though it was verified from a pharmacy that it's a human dose of ivermectin uh, and even checked by their own pharmacy. Uh, so it's just sad. It's just, And that's what the media would run with. Uh, the local media would just run with that's what we were giving him was horse pills but instead of really looking into that. And that's just so sad. So these nurses got to see it. And at the end, the nurse who was still hesitant to believe that they weren't doing all they can, he just said, I just can't believe it. I can't believe that we wouldn't you know, give something else if there was something working. Well, he got to see that working. And then he's seen them revoke it. Then he's seen this higher dose of steroid working. And then they revoked it. Man, he had, I could tell he had a whole different look on this now. Like, what am I doing here? Uh, so at the end, when I came up to, to come be with my husband, because they told me I was losing him, that, that nurse came up and hugged me. And he told me he was so sorry and that he heard what had happened. And he said he was angry. He told me, he told his wife at home that he was so angry that 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 took place, that these doctors were taking away something that was helping him. So I think now his eyes are open to that. I think he's going to have a whole new look on what his job as a healthcare worker is today and really what he's being paid for. My husband should not have to put a price on his life and die so someone else can pay their rent or pay their utility bills or whatever. My husband didn't sign up to be a human sacrifice for them to be able to make ends meet. I would have gladly have paid out thousands of dollars more to keep him alive. I wouldn't have put a price tag on his life. No, of course you wouldn't have. Well, the one thing that I think we can do is we can have people who will yet, it's now law in Florida for the next two years that this protocol is keeps all the healthcare workers bulletproof. We can educate people. I feel like you were as educated as people were 
last November, December. Yeah. And you, and still this happened. So what would you tell to wrap up? What would you tell other people whose loved ones walk, walk in through the doors of the gauntlet? Because I've started to think of the minute you walk in the, into the ER, it starts with the swab. They get money for the swab. You get swabbed. I don't care if you came in with a broken arm, if you're po- COVID positive and you're vulnerable, like a Down syndrome adult or a senior or somebody mm-hmm. who's very sick, you're probably going to end up with a vent in your lungs. Oh yeah. oh yeah. So what would you tell people knowing what you know now, what would you, what would you tell them to do? Well, be very aware of every single thing that they're giving you. Um, I did not know about the drugs to make him compliant that they were giving. What people aren't aware of is that they're giving these patients things like Xanax and Valiums, other things. And not only will that deplete their oxygen level, and people wouldn't know that. I didn't know that until later. Hindsight's twenty twenty. But they're giving him that. And he was telling us that he's feeling loopy and feeling delusional. And that's actually illegal to be having them consent to things while they're not in the right state of mind. In a normal universe, we wouldn't have them getting away with that. Um, So people need to make sure that they're not taking anything like that because they're doing that for a purpose. They're doing that so they can say, oh, that you're not able to make an informed choice. We're going to do it now for you. Um, Don't believe the line that if they vent you, that is going to make your body take have rest and things to start to repair itself or giving your body the rest it needs. We have never, ever taking patients who are breathing still on their own and put them on life support. And that's what they're doing. Uh, so when you go on a vent, you're, it's not helping your lungs to breathe. It is breathing for your lungs. Now your rest of your organs see your body is in distress mode and it makes everything work harder. Your heart rate's going to start beating faster. Your blood pressure is going to rise. Things are, start, start to go into fight or flight mode because they think that your lungs are no longer working. So my husband was trying to breathe past the vent because he could still breathe. Uh, And they would try to paralyze him where he can't move to let the machine breathe for him, which is then making his lungs fail. Um, So uh, that's what people are trusting these doctors thinking, okay, well, you know, I'm going to give my body rest. I don't come in as an asthmatic all those years. And I've been in the ER a few times from asthma attacks and never once they say, let me put you on a ventilator so we can let your lung, your body heal and get rest. If you're still breathing, you're not on a vent. You're you're on a vent when they're trying to keep your organs still alive, you know, and and that's like a less ditch effort to keep you sustaining life. Um, so yeah, they 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 they're taking healthy people that are still breathing and they're putting them on these vents and they're causing all kinds of other health problems and high flow oxygen with the BiPAP mask. Well, their lungs can't keep up with that high flow. And then they're trying to justify going on a vent because they're trying to have their lungs keep up with the high flow oxygen that their lungs are not able to do. Uh, so it's, it's total malpractice. It's, it's legal, legalized malpractice right now is what we got. I had one attorney actually tell me that our doctors are basically given a license to kill for profit. That's where we are in our country today, a license to kill for profit. And so people need to be aware of that. I mean, I would try to keep yourself out of the hospital at all costs, like and look for doctors that are giving these other meds that are helping. But if you need to go in, 
obviously there's times when you do, if you need to go in, you just need to be really aware of every single thing and put it in writing. So when they give you your consent forms to sign to release for treatment, put it in writing yourself. Do not consent to remdesivir. Do not consent to being ventilated, you know, um, anything like that. So that way it's in writing because if you count on them to do it, they're not going to do it. They'll lie to you. They'll lie to you to cover their own butts. So some of these families are, um, they're killing their loved ones without the vent. Or they're getting them on the vent at the end, but they can they can do some serious damage with high flow oxygen and with BiPAP as well. Yes. Yep. Okay. How can we support you, Stacy? Do you have a a, um, a give send go? I do. I I do have a give, give, send, go link, um, that, you know, I can send you to put with the video. Um, so people can find that and that's to help me get through bills on my own now that I am stuck with and trying to, uh, take care of, um, because my husband was, I I counted on him a lot for everything. So I'm on my own quite a bit. Um, and then also trying to find legal help to, to now fight for, his justice in this, as well as protect a whole bunch of other people. I am trying to fight to create also Ryan's law to try to put a stop to this protection on these hospitals um, and to um, be able to have a right to choose your own drugs, just like we have for cancer patients, the right to try. And he's also be with uh, all these COVID patients as well. They want to label it COVID, then fine. Then they need to have the right to try other methods, not just that protocol. Um, And so I'm trying to work for that. And so I do have an email too. Anyone can reach out to me if they know of anyone else wanting to share my story. If there's any state legislators uh, in my state of Michigan or anywhere that want me to come and speak out, I will do that. Um, I will do whatever it takes to see this through. Like I said, it's just, um, you know, we got to each look in the mirror and say, what can I do to make a difference? Because like these attorneys being scared to speak out, doctors being afraid to speak out, it's time that courage becomes more contagious and we all start doing our part. Uh, so my email is ryansfight at protonmail.com. Um, and I will also share that with you so that you can share that too. But uh, so we need we'll to start banding together. We'll put that in the show notes below and your give, send, go or whatever. Uh, platform that you're receiving donations. And I also put the story that I read at the beginning, which is on protocolkills.com. Lots of stories, unfortunately, yes. like Stacy's and Stacy's and Ryan's. And so let let Ryan never be forgotten. God bless you and keep you, Stacy. No, thank you. You too. Thank you for doing this. Of course. I know. <laughs> Bye-bye.